This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the ESV Scripture Journal. Each ESV Scripture Journal pairs the entirety of an individual book of the Bible with lightly lined blank pages opposite each page of Bible text, allowing readers to take extended notes or record insights and prayers directly beside corresponding passages of Scripture. These thin, portable notebooks are great for personal Bible reading and reflection, small group study, writing out extended portions of scripture, or taking notes through a sermon series. Pick up an ESV scripture journal wherever Bibles are sold, or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. You're listening to the Gospel Coalition Podcast equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, we're doing something a little different by bringing you a special interview. It's between our senior writer at TGC, Sarah Zalstra, and David Wells, one of the most influential theologians you've never heard of. David's story points to how God truly does direct each of our steps. After listening to their conversation, send us an email at ask at tgc.org. We'd love to hear your feedback. And if you'd like to hear more interviews like this one, that's ask at tgc.org. Now here's today's episode with Sarah Zalstra and David Wells. Hi there. This is Sarah Zylstra, Senior Writer for the Gospel Coalition. My job is to find and report on places where God's Spirit is at work in the world. So, I hear a lot of stories of Christians who are living sacrificial, joyful, kingdom-advancing, God-glorifying lives. I'm excited to share this one with you. David Wells is probably one of the most influential theologians you've never heard of. He spent most of his adult years quietly teaching at Gordon-Conwell Seminary and writing a series of books. The first of them, No Place for Truth, was penned in the early 1990s and was a critique of the evangelical movement's slide away from robust theology and into softer, more seeker-sensitive models. Wells's warnings against the culture's post-truth effect on the church turned out not just to be prescient, but also to set the stage for the resurgence of Calvinism. The book helped theologians such as James Montgomery Boyce, Al Mohler, R.C. Sproul, and J.I. Packer to form the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Many of them would later organize together for the Gospel and the Gospel Coalition. Wells' students included TGC board chair Kevin DeYoung and Capitol Hill Baptist Church pastor Mark Dever. But if you'd met David Wells as a child, that's the last thing you would have predicted for his future. Wells grew up in Zimbabwe in the 1940s, back when the sub-Saharan country was a British colony called Rhodesia. 
His grandmother had traveled there from Scotland, alone and embarrassingly divorced, years before. His mother was a secretary, his father a soldier who fought in the last successful sword charge of World War I. When his father became a judge and district commissioner, the family lived in the bush, as Wells says, which means their home had few neighbors, no street out front, no running water, and no electricity. Here's Wells. My dad was legally trained. Uh, He administered law. And um, it was like, on a very minor scale, it was like a governor of a state here. Um, uh, He took care of soil erosion. One of the things that he had to take care of uh, was wild animals that were uh, being problematic. Uh, Sometimes um, elephant will um, become very, very destructive. And, and also, uh, you know, the crocodile in the rivers, um, there was one place where uh, women were going down, they went down to the river to wash stuff, and these women were disappearing. And um, my dad shot a crocodile, a large one, and opened it up and there were 17 bracelets inside it. He had to take care of uh, stuff like that too. Wow. So it feels like bold, like the boldness of you leaving home was pretty bold, but it was also pretty bold to live at your home. Yes, you had to be very aware of your surroundings at all times and um, be able to protect yourself if needs be. I can still remember one place we lived, it was called Motoko. Um, I used to sleep on a screened-in porch, and behind us there were uh, hills. We, we called them uh, kopis. It was an Afrikaans word. And in this kopi behind our house, there was um, a family of leopard. And I used to hear them just about every night they, they were obviously in a pattern. They would come right by our house and by our screened-in porch. And uh, I'll be honest, I, I, it really alarmed me. Yeah. You know, because you have this vision of a leopard coming through the screen and yeah, getting Yeah. <laughs> I can see why that would worry you. <laughs> yeah. But you kept sleeping out there. I did. The Wells family went into town about once a month for things they couldn't produce themselves, like tea or sugar. The rest of the time, they lived off the land, shooting guinea fowl, pheasant, duck, and small antelope for food. Early on, Wells learned how to handle himself around wild animals. My dad um, had to go to this very remote part of uh, Zimbabwe, Uh, on official government business. And um, we stayed in these little African huts on the edge, the bank of the Sabi River. And um, I thought I would just go out and see what I could see. And I did. And I didn't realize that the lion were about. And um, I did when one roared very close to me. Lion usually roar at night 
um, and they're warning each other because lion fights are usually fatal. Oh. So they're telling each other, stay away, you know, we're here. Um, but when you, when you are around lion, as I was in that case, uh, your instinct is just to run as fast as you can. Yeah. But that's the, that's the worst thing you can do because that excites their instincts to chase. So I stood stock still. I don't know how I did it, but I did for a long time. Um, I had a, a 22, which is not a very uh, powerful rifle. You know, it's more like a pop gun against yeah. a lion. And I waited to see where he was or she was. And it was very close, but I couldn't see it. So eventually I crept back to the camp. to see God's physical protection for 12-year-old Wells in that story, and really throughout his childhood, with its myriad opportunities for physical danger and minimal medical resources if you did get hurt. But if you ask the 81-year-old Wells about moments he knows God was working in his life, he'll direct you somewhere else. As I look back, um, I have been struck by uh, the extraordinary providence of God and in connection with two moves to two different countries. Uh, when I left Africa and ended up in England, and when I left England and ended up in the U.S. Hmm. Um, the, these were extraordinary things. Um, when I was growing up, it was at the time when colonialism was just ending, and there were uh, freedom movements springing up in Africa. And this, these movements came ever uh, closer to Rhodesia. Mm -hmm. uh, they sort of moved south. Almost the last time I saw my mother, which was after I'd left Zimbabwe, uh, she picked me up at the airport in Bulawayo, where I live, and she reached into her purse and took out a revolver and put it in her lap. Then she reached under the car seat and took out another one, handed it to me. It was dusk, so it was dangerous. This is these when attacks occur. Yep. And she said, I'll take my side, you take your side. And that's how we drove into Bulawayo. Because uh, Rhodesia was under siege by guerrillas. And, of course, eventually, in 1980, um, Mugabe uh, came to power. So, when I was growing up in Rhodesia during this time, uh, there was no question uh, that I would have to leave. Mm. Um, my whole generation up and left, um, a, a lot of them went to Australia, a few to South Africa, and some, like myself, ended up uh, in Britain. Hmm. So this was on my mind when I went to uh, the University of Cape Town, to the architectural school there. Uh, I knew I would have to find another country. Mm -hmm. 
the question was, which one? Yeah. And it was at the University of Cape Town uh, when John Stott was visiting as a missioner. And for the very first time in my life, I heard the gospel. And uh, a couple of days later, uh, came to faith. And almost immediately, I sensed a call into ministry. It was almost simultaneous. So I then began to think, now, I, I've got to get a theological education. So how was I going to do that? Well, I decided um, that probably the best thing to do was to go to Britain, to go to England. I went to London, and uh, there uh, I had written to John Stott beforehand, and he said, well, come and see me. So I did, and he said, where are you living? I said, I've got nowhere to live after in 10 days' time. So he said, well, come and live with me. So I moved into the rectory, as it was called, um, attached, of course, to All Souls Church. And lo and behold, next door was the Royal Institute of British Architects headquarters. So the day I moved into the rectory, I went next door. I needed a job. I had no money. I'd only left with the equivalent of about $400. So I was just about out. And uh, there was a bulletin board with um, positions that were available. Um, firms were looking for help. I picked the one that I thought was um, probably would work well for me, borrowed a telephone, had an interview the next day, and the next day I began to work as an architect in London. It was about a 10-minute walk from where I was living. And just a year later, I was still thinking, now, I need a theological education. I'm not here to work as an architect. I need a theological education. How was I going to pay for it? Yeah. And someone mentioned to me, there was some uh, London County Council awards, and I thought, I couldn't apply for that. I'm, I'm an immigrant. I've just arrived. But I did. And the amazing thing was, I was given not only an award, but the major award. How did you so, pull that off? Like, did you write a really good essay or <laughs> what? How big uh, that to you? Sarah, I, I, <laughs> I can't explain it. I honestly can't because that major award paid for my tuition and living expenses. So I started in at the University of London. So, you know, I, I look back on that whole thing. I had gone out almost like Abraham, not knowing where I was going. And um, the way it all came together was just remarkable. And to me, there is no other explanation than the sovereignty of God and his provision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is amazing. I'm amazed that you can just walk up to John Stott's office and knock on the door. Like, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it really was, yeah. The other one was the move yeah. to the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And I had a friend. His name was Ken Blackwell. Okay. And um, he had a Lambretta scooter, you know, these little things with small <laughs> wheels. And we'd heard about Francis Schaeffer. And he said to me, well, look, why don't we ride across Europe and go and visit Francis Schaeffer and check it out for ourselves? So we set off on his Lambretta scooter, rather terrifying, riding through <laughs> Paris. 
<laughs> those French drivers are really pretty wild. Uh, <laughs> it was the two of us were on it, you know, with our knapsacks. And, yeah. Uh, and then it had to be kind it, of a long trip too, wasn't it? I mean, that's not just across it, town. No, 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 no. It was a couple of days, three days. As I three days. Yeah. And then into the Swiss Alps where his scooter expired. Oh, no. Yeah. So I... I set off walking. He went down down the mountain back the other way. I started walking, not knowing where Labrie was, when a bus pushed past me and stopped, and a young woman got off, and we were, it turned out, at Labrie. And um, the young woman's name was Jane Bowman, and I noticed her. That was the beginning of a weekend. I talked to her a couple of times, just briefly, introduced, etc. She then, during the week, had to go back down to Lausanne, where she was staying. She came up the following weekend, and we uh, spent the weekend talking and decided at the end that there was a future for us together. Uh, I nervously asked her if she would consider this. And she was very happy to do so. We were both heading off in different directions. She was going to Greece the next day. I was coming back to uh, London. Um, but uh, we decided that perhaps what she ought to do is to come and visit a little bit. Her parents thought that was a very good idea since really it had been, you know, one and a half weekends. <laughs> so she did. And um, she for three weeks and then at the end of that time we formally announced uh, that we were engaged uh, but I didn't know what I was going to do um, I had to do some more academic work for sure if I was going to teach mm -hmm. uh, so we did spend think, did you always think teaching or were you like sort of some lots of people would become a pastor after a theological education did you ever think I want to be a pastor um uh, well, I did do a little pastoring, actually, but it was here in the U.S. Uh, I had originally thought that I wanted to be a missionary. But oh, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> but I can that, see you doing that. <laughs> that, that changed when I was um, in the middle of my academic work. Um, so uh, I did a degree at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I then went back to Manchester, Man University of Manchester in England, and it was while I was towards the end of my doctorate that I was recruited to come back and teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And uh, the lovely thing about that was that, of course, Jane, my wife, was coming back to the U.S., uh, which is she was willing to go wherever I went. But, you know, she, she is an American. Mm -hmm. And I was able to come here without any problem because I was married to an American, so I got my green card, and then not long afterwards, uh, I became an American citizen. So I am actually an African-American. Oh, look at you. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, how, how that all transpired, again, it, it, was, it was so evidently yeah. uh, the providence of God uh, and his provisions. Yeah. How, what made you change from missionary to scholar? Well, in England in those days, uh, when you uh, did a course, uh, all your grades, 
all the grades from the, the students in the class were put up publicly. Okay. So you knew exactly where you were, uh, at the top or at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we wouldn't do that today because yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> it wouldn't be good for self-esteem, etc. cetera. But um, I noticed that I was usually up at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Oz Guinness was usually there too. <laughs> So, you know, there's nothing that encourages you quite like a little success. And I began to think, you know, maybe I have an aptitude for this sort of work. Mm-hmm. So that that's eventually what happened. Hmm. Maybe if we put up those scores today, students would be some students would be encouraged to sue. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> that wouldn't work out, but it did no. for you. I'm, maybe that's why God put you at that point in time. <laughs> Wells powered through three theology degrees, a bachelor's, a master's, and a doctorate in six years. He took a job teaching theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, then began teaching at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in 1979. He was there when he wrote No Place for Truth, followed by four more books that essentially laid out a systematic theology for the modern age. My colleague, Matt Smethurst, read it recently. The New Calvinist movement, for all its foibles and fallen stars, is a direct answer to Wells' prayer in No Place for Truth. Reading the book recently just made me so grateful to God on multiple fronts, grateful for the theocentric legacies of Sproul and Piper and Carson and others, for doctrinally serious seminaries, for the Evangelical Theological Society, for Reformed hip-hop, for publishers like Crossway, for conferences like Together for the Gospel, and for ministries that serve churches like Desiring God and Nine Marks and the Gospel Coalition. So much good has been accomplished and so much ground taken since Wells wrote that book. And reading it in 2020, with the benefit of hindsight, makes that crystal clear. Wells eventually retired from teaching, but he didn't stop writing about the gospel. He just switched audiences from Western theologians to African children. His friend Rosemary Jensen had started an organization called Rafiki, which cared for and educated orphans in 10 African countries. She asked him to edit a Bible study for them. And someone said, well, why don't we do something like Bible Study Fellowship has done? Uh, And Rosemary, um, who was the president and founder of Rafiki, said, um, yes, except we're not going to do just a few books. We're going to do the whole Bible. And I I sort of inwardly gasped. I didn't say anything because, you know, doing the whole Bible is quite an undertaking. (laughs) It is. (laughs) <laughs> so I did I did edit it. I edited it all. It's all written from a reform perspective. And um, I did a number of books myself um, because they hadn't worked out one way or another. And since this is Africa that we were thinking about, um, and Christian materials are not abundant in many parts of Africa, 
you know, we really tried to provide something substantive. For example, uh, I did Romans, and it comes to 150 pages. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite significant. Mm-hmm. Now, you multiply that out over the whole Bible, and <laughs> you see this is quite a large um, undertaking. Yeah, yeah. I think there was probably, I think there was 17 or 18 of us who did it, and we completed it in a decade or 12 years, some, something like that. The Bible study is currently being used by 400 study groups, both in Africa and in the United States. It's just been a wonderful gift to me um, because I, I can go back and just do a little something yeah. for, for Africa. Yeah. And uh, I've been very grateful for that. When you kind of look back at your life as a whole, are there, um, I guess, when you think about like what's going to live on, what's your legacy going to be? What are things that you that you think of when you look back on your time? Oh, Sarah, I, I don't think about that at all. I think um, you just have to um, follow the Lord mm-hmm. and and in the best possible way that you're able, uh, serve Him, depending on Him and on His grace, and let Him dispose of your efforts however He will. I'm not looking back and asking about, you know, legacy or any of those things. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to the time (laughs) when I'm with the Lord and, um, you know, all of the chaos and suffering and evil uh, of this world has been finally uh, judged. If we look back, we can see the influence of David Wells has been pretty remarkable. Not many of us are going to write cultural critiques that help spark a global movement toward the gospel. But the pattern he's laid of following God one decision, one move at a time, is one we can all imitate. The way it all came together was just remarkable. And to me, there is no other explanation than the sovereignty of God and His provision. And... As we trust God with our daily decisions, when to hold still as a lion roars, when to get on a scooter to cross Europe, which continent to land on after graduation, or more likely, whether to have another child, when to enroll in our next class, how to speak to our next customer, we can fix our eyes where David Wells fixes his on the beauty and joy and peace we know is coming. That's what I'm looking forward to. Mm, Me too. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org.